So we've uh, been following Paul on his journeys for the last several weeks, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks now talking about some of his writings <clears throat> over the next couple of weeks. Actually, I'm going to just spend one week, and then y'all are going to do the rest of it. But, um, so uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about power of thoughts and, uh, coming from Paul. And I want to kind of move into it by reading you this passage. This is Matthew. Uh, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, I, I want to take a little side journey here for just a minute because sometimes people tend to think that Jesus made this up kind of on the spot. You know, that he just kind of pulled this out of the hat. I want you to understand that actually he, he's sharing words of wisdom that go way back into, uh, into the law of the Old Testament. Uh, so if you go back into Deuteronomy 6, 5, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Uh, Leviticus 19, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So I want you to, to understand that he's, he's standing firmly within the tradition of Scripture when he says this uh, to the lawyer. But part of what he says here is, is loving God with all your mind. And so uh, what does that mean to love God with our mind and, and to direct our thoughts toward God? And I want to start off with a little short video uh, for you this morning. I was riding along just fine, and then we started to go down a hill. I was going pretty fast, and I was honestly a bit scared. I've never been that great on bikes. I saw way down the hill a giant pole, and I kept on thinking, don't hit the pole, don't hit the pole. Then right at the critical moment, my muscles tensed up, and I went off the sidewalk, and I hit the flipping pole. It hit the gear shift and broke it, and I had to tell my mom. She wasn't very happy because she uses that bike like every day for exercise, and now she couldn't even shift gears. My dad bought a new shifter and replaced it, so my mom had the use of her bike back again. My dad said that he had heard about something like this, and he looked it up. What he found was target fixation. Target fixation is an attentional phenomenon observed in humans in which an individual becomes so focused on an observed object, be it a target or a hazard, that they inadvertently increase the risk of colliding with the object. So, yeah. Me looking at the telephone pole and thinking, I hope I don't hit that, apparently made my subconscious go, Hey, he's looking at those pipes. I feel like we should smash right into them. Just a feeling, but I'm going for it. Ugh, why, brain? Just why? So be careful out there, everyone. And if there's something that you need to avoid in life, don't look at it too hard, or you'll most likely slam right into it. So thank you guys so much for watching, and I'll see you guys later. So, so I know you're laughing about that, but it, it, it is a real thing. Y'all know that, right? I mean, this is a real thing, and it's observed in people on bicycles, people on cars, people on motorcycles, Fighter pilots have a big issue with this when they train. Uh, and so this is uh, a actually a, a very real thing. Where we focus our attention is where we tend to go. So, so the question this morning is, 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 where is your attention focused? I mean, where are your thoughts going? What are you focused on? Uh, and, and where are you putting your attention in life? Um, it seems to me that sometimes we forget that, that this is a real deal. And, uh, and so we move through life and we don't realize that when all of our attention is focused on other people's hatred, uh, we tend to become hateful. 
when all of our attention is focused on injustice, we tend to become unjust. When all of our attention is focused on anger, we tend to become angry. When all of our attention is focused on the darkness around us, we tend to become like the darkness. So as I begin this morning, I'm just going to ask you to plant that thought in your mind. Where, where is your attention focused? Where are your thoughts? What's the target that your life is fixed on? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to come in the power of your spirit this morning and be in the midst of us and, and open our minds up to what you would have us to see. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to introduce you to some, uh, some old friends of mine. They're really old. They wrote from 350 to 400 A.D., uh, the last half of the 4th century. Some of the early saints of the church who wrote commentary on Scripture and, uh, and wrote sermons on some of the Scriptures we're going to be reading. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things to understand with these guys is that, uh, and they, they're all guys in this case, uh, is that when they became Christians, when they converted, a lot of times their names that they took on have significance to them. They actually added a name uh, to what they were born with. And so uh, there was a, a saint at this time called Ambrose who was the Bishop of Milan. And the word Ambrose means the immortal one. It's a reference to the resurrection. Uh, there was a, a set of commentaries written on Paul's letters that originally were uh, assumed to be written by Ambrose. And then later on, they found some other copies and realized, no, it's not actually Ambrose. It just sounds like him. So they're considered to be written by Ambrosiaster, which means it's like Ambrose. You know, we don't really know who he is, but he, he wrote like Ambrose, so they call him Ambrosiaster. Uh, Marius Victorinus was a Roman grammarian. Uh, his name means the man who conquers uh, the victory in Christ. He converted in 355. Uh, John Chrysostom uh, converted later in, my, in life. He was known to be a gifted speaker, so his Christian name means golden-mouthed. Uh, and he was the Bishop of Antioch in Constantinople. And so as I read through this morning, uh, the reason I'm bringing these guys is sometimes we forget that, that you know, way back when, uh, the, the, in the early church, there were people of great intelligence that were looking at these. And, and the earlier you get in history, the closer to the events you get historically, uh, oftentimes the more accurate, uh, the assumption is that it's more accurate reflection upon it. So we're going to look at a little bit of Paul's letter to Philippians. He has this line, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now remember that Paul grew up with one foot in the Hebrew camp and one foot in the Roman camp. So he had both of those kinds of backgrounds to him. And he would have understood that in Hebrew poetry, there's something called a couplet where a line is repeated. And when it's done that way, uh, it's done for the purpose of emphasis. Uh, kind of like you or I might write a line and put like two exclamation points at the end of it. Well, the, the Hebrew poets would double their lines and that would serve the same purpose. And Paul in this line, he's kind of bringing that across into the Greek. And so what, what you really need to hear is he's not just being redundant uh, in this. What it, it's kind of like writing rejoice with a couple of exclamation marks at the end of it. And, and, and what's really important to understand about that is he's writing this from prison. He's sitting in prison. He doesn't know what's happened. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed at this point. And he writes, rejoice. Now he writes this to the church in Philippi, uh, which is the first church he established in Macedonia when he came across. 
And, and the Philippian church has a special place in Paul's heart. He has a, a really warm place for them. This letter is sometimes called the letter of joy. Uh, and if you read the way some of the other ones crank up and start off and the way this one starts off, you'll, you'll notice immediately that there's a, a lot more affection and joy and love in his writing to the church in Philippi. He has a, a very warm feeling for them. Uh, they've sent a gift to him in prison. We don't know what it was, but they've sent him some kind of a gift uh, to him, and he's writing this letter in love and appreciation uh, for that back to the church in Philippi to his friends that he loves and cares for. So there's a lot, a lot of affection in this letter as he writes to him, and, and this comes toward the end of the letter. This is kind of, he's kind of closing out his comments, and so, uh, so he's giving them some advice at the closing end of the letter, and, and he's reminding them, rejoice. E even from the midst of prison, waiting to see if he's going to be executed, he can write and say, rejoice, exclamation point as he writes to them. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous word of joy that is speaking. It, it tells us something about what Paul is going to continue with. He's going to say, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Commentaries on that. Uh, uh, forbearance is individual patience that observes the measure without straining beyond its station, uh, which really is a fancy way of saying humility. When we live among strangers and live in a way commensurate with our lowliness, God will lift us up. In other words, we're to live with humility among those around us and let God do uh, what lifts us up. Uh, and, and we're to live in a way that reflects God's love and grace in the world so that other people will be blessed not only from doing good deeds, but also by inspiring good deeds in other words. In other words, it, it's not just what we do for others that brings blessing to us, but allowing that to be seen so that others are inspired to do the same thing. Uh, to go out and, and to live in this way uh, in the world. And Ambrosius talks about this Lord is near. He says, they must be prepared and wakeful in prayer, giving thanks to God and putting away every worldly care so as to have hope and have before their eyes what the Lord promises. Uh, to be wakeful in prayer, to be knowing that God is near, even in prison, to know that God is with you. Uh, even in prison to know that God has promises for you. Even in prison to know that God's goodness rests upon you. Uh, the Lord is near to, is, is what supports us to understand that even in the worst of circumstances, God is still with us and God is still holding us up and God is still pouring out love and blessing upon us. Don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, that, that's my favorite. You know, don't worry about anything. Uh, we have somebody in the congregation who likes to joke around. I think she's joking. I'm not sure. But she says, her saying is, why pray when you can worry? <laughs> and Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about anything. But, but pray. But pray. Lift it up in prayer instead. Uh, take everything to God uh, with thanksgiving. Don't be concerned for yourselves. Don't give unnecessary thought to or be anxious about the world or worldly things. For all that is needed for you in this life, God provides, and it will be even better in that life which is eternal. Now, if you break that, what, what Morris is saying there, you break it apart. I mean, God has already provided for you, right? I mean, you're here this morning. So, I mean, you've had something to eat. You, you slept. You woke up this morning. Everything that's gone into getting you here this morning, God has already provided for that. So why should we not expect that God will keep doing that? I mean, to live in expectation that God is going to continue to be as good to you as God has been. But the other part of that, too, is this, this having a different perspective, uh, having uh, even better this eternal life perspective. Uh, too often we get in this thing where, where we shrink our perspective down, right? 
We don't, we don't think in eternal means. We just think about this life. And you know, if you just think about this life, then the things of this life have a tendency to become ultimately important. You know, what you wear, what you eat, how much money you make, and where you live. All those things tend to become of ultimate importance to you. And you worry about those. But if you begin to think in terms of eternity, which is the life that God has promised us, then the span of this life becomes pretty insignificant. And the things that this world wants to think are so important become pretty minor. And in the span of eternity, this is not stuff to worry about. And if we limit our thought only to this life, what happens is secondary things take on primary importance. But if our perspective is eternal, then we tend to keep the main thing the main thing. And we don't allow secondary things to become what overwhelms us. Have an eternal perspective. It will free you from a tremendous amount of anxiety. And give thanks for everything, even what seems grievous. This is the mark of one who is truly thankful. Grief comes out of the circumstances with their demands. Thanksgiving comes from a soul that has true insight and a strong affection for God. I want you to understand that Chrysostom there is not saying, don't grieve. That's not what he's saying. And he's, saying you're, he's not saying your grief isn't real. But he's saying, you know, you can grieve and be thankful both. Um, if you've ever lost a loved one and you've uh, gotten to that point and you're, you're doing the funeral for them, you know, part of that funeral, uh, you're, you're going to have grief. You're going to hurt because someone you love is, has died. And, and you're going to feel that, and it's very real. But at the same time, you're also going to be thankful that you had them in your life, that God blessed you with this person in your life. And you're going to be thankful that God has caught them up now and their life is carried on for eternity. And so you're going to be sitting in that room with grief and thankfulness, both at the same time. That's what Paul reminds us of, you know. Yeah, be thankful, even in difficult times. I mean, grief is real, but, but God is still God and God is still with us. As I came into the uh, 815 service this morning, somebody was telling me about the events in Dayton. And, uh, and I'm sure that a lot of us heard that this morning and came with a load of grief on our hearts for uh, our brothers and sisters. And that's real. It's valid. I mean, that's the way you should feel about that. I mean, we should bring that grief. But there's also the reality that, that even in the midst of that tragedy, God is still with us and God is still with the people of Dayton. And God will still be at work there. It doesn't make the grief any less real. But it reminds us that, that the grief is not a sign that God has abandoned us. But that even in those times of grief and even times of hardship, God is still with us. And there's still reason to be thankful for the presence of God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One of the realities as Paul writes through this is, is that you hear how integral to God peace is. Uh, we, we talk about, you know, God is love or God is this or God is, but, but God is also peace. Uh, and so Paul's going to talk about that some in this passage. And he's talking about this peace that surpasses all understanding is going to hold your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, when the peace of God has come upon us, we shall understand God. 
There will be no discord, no disagreement, no quarrelsome arguments, nothing subject to question. This is hardly the case in worldly life, right? Let's be honest. Uh, but in God's presence, it all holds together. And, and the word peace here is not simply the absence of conflict, but it's the word that uh, in Hebrew would have been shalom. Uh, but it's this understanding of the wholeness or the harmony of, of who you are and who God is. And it goes beyond what we're able to do. The peace of God which he imparted to us passes all understanding. For who could have expected and who could have hoped for such benefits? For his enemies, for those who hated him, for the apostates, for all these, he did not refuse to give his only begotten son so as to make peace with them. Christ says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. For this peace passes all human understanding. How? When he sees that we should be at peace with enemies, with the unrighteous, with those who display contentiousness and hostility toward us, how does this not pass human understanding? Now, let's, let's have a real honest moment here. Uh, <clears throat> if you have somebody who is hostile toward you and contentious with you and treating you with contempt and so forth and so on, are, are you going to feel real peaceful and loving toward them? Be honest, right? I mean, most of the time when people come at us like that, don't we tend to respond pretty much the same way? But the peace of God is different. Because God's peace was loving and reaching out even to those who were enemies. And God's peace, when it dwells in us, enables us to treat those that are around us with grace and with love. And my friends, that is more than what you and I are capable of doing. It goes beyond what we're able to do. It's a peace that only comes to us when the peace of God dwells within us. And it's the kind of peace that, that marked the heart and mind of Christ Jesus. So when this peace dwells in us, we can maintain ourselves in Christ, even in the midst of conflict and even in the midst of, of facing folks who are hostile or contentious toward us. And that, that's part of what marks the presence of God with us, is, is the presence and the indwelling of that peace of God in us. And as he gets toward the end of the letter, this is kind of a closing exhortation, if you will, in the letter. He says, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, Paul's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, and they would have been uh, folks who were of Greek background, more familiar with Greek philosophy than with Hebrew thought. And, and, and these concepts that he mentions here, these are all various virtues that were part of the Greek philosophical kind of understanding and Stoic understanding. And so, so he's, he's actually talking about things that they understood. He's saying, these are things you, you know about, you know, things that are true and, and, and just and, and pure. I mean, these are things you, you know about, and these are things that, that actually come from God. Because, see, on Athens, he stood on Mars Hill, if you'll remember, and he, and he spoke to the people of Athens about the unknown God. He says, you know, this unknown God you worship, this is the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so he's doing the same thing here. He's speaking then to them in the vernacular that they would have understood but he's connecting that to the person of God with this. And, and the structure of this is uh, interesting. Uh, when you and I read through it, we probably just kind of see it as a list 
of things. Actually, there's, there's more structure to it than that, both in Greek philosophy and in the, the original languages. Uh, of this list, some items pertain to true virtue itself, while the later ones pertain to the fruit of virtue. To virtue, it belongs to love, truth, honor, justice, and purity. To the fruit of virtue belongs that which is lovely and gracious. Now, now when you look at this and you start to put it together and you read it in the original language, what you understand is it's not just a random group of things that Paul has thrown together, but rather what Paul is saying to this is, is when you focus your mind on these things, these are the things you need to look at, you understand that, that what is true is going to be honorable, and what is true and honorable is going to be just, and what is true and honorable and just is going to be pure. And what is true and honorable and just and pure is going to produce that, which is lovely and gracious. And so that understanding comes, if you actually read it in the original language, you kind of pick that up a little bit. But, but Victorianus is, is lifting that up here and helping us to understand that when Paul is doing this, he, he's not just randomly throwing things out. This is, this is a unified piece of thought about where we are to direct our thoughts. Because when we do that, then we open ourselves up to the indwelling of the God who is behind that. We count on nothing of our own, but on grace alone. This is why he, Paul, speaks conditionally, if any excellence, for the virtues being nurtured in us are not from us, but from God's grace. In other words, it's not that when you focus your mind on that, that you produce it, but when you focus your mind on that, you open the door for God to indwell you with these. When you begin to to open the door, God's grace comes and indwells you with these virtues. And the amazing thing is that the, the more of that that God pours in your heart, the wider the door is opened. And the wider the door is opened, the more grace is poured into your life. And the door opens even wider. And more grace is poured in your life. And the door opens even wider until God's grace indwells you so heavily that everything else is removed which is what Wesley talked about when he talked about being perfected in love. It's slowly but surely to allow God's grace to open us up until we are completely filled with it instead of with ourselves. But it's the work of God. And Victorinus wants you to hear that. The fact that you focus your mind on this doesn't mean that you're producing it, but rather that you're opening the door for God to do that work in you. And keep on doing the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read this years ago, I thought, well, that's, that's a little bit egotistical, isn't it? And Paul's saying, well, you know, listen, you do what you see me doing, and God will be with you. It sounds a little bit, you know, arrogant on the edge of it, but actually he, he's trying to be very practical with them uh, in their normal living. Um, he sees that it's impossible to give precise instructions about everything. They're going out, they're coming in, their words, their inner condition, and their company. All these a Christian must think about in context. He says concisely, and as it were in a nutshell, just do what you've heard and seen me do. Now, some of you remember about 20 years ago, we had the WWJD bracelet things and all that. You know, what would Jesus do? This is kind of like Paul saying to the church in Philippi, you know, we'll just wear the WWPD bracelet. What would Paul do? I mean, that's basically what he's doing. 
Uh, because what he recognizes is that, you know, life gets really complicated sometimes. And so if you're, if you're in the middle of it and you can't quite figure it out, just, just ask yourself, well, what, what would Paul do in this situation? And, and you're probably good. And one of my favorite sayings is that uh, ideas and concepts are really neat and clean and people are really messy. You know, I mean, you can think about all this stuff. You can get all these virtues in your mind. You can have all these ideas. You can know your scripture back and forth. You can get all that. And as long as it's just you in your head, you know, you, you can get it all figured out. But then you go out there and you start getting in the middle of people. And it gets really messy, doesn't it? It gets really complicated. You know, several years back now, I did my, uh, my stepfather's wedding. After my mother passed away, he remarried. And, uh, and they invited me to get to go do the wedding. And so we went down to First Church Victoria and, uh, and had the wedding. It was a great day. We had a great celebration. Place was packed. Cindy says she thinks there was about 300 people that were there. Uh, and, and, and somebody was saying, oh, this is a really great family wedding. And, and partway through it, it hit me that, you know, really, actually, I'm only related to like 15 of these people, you know, by blood. There's, there's only, a, I mean, because remember, this is my stepfather marrying another woman now. And so most of the people that are here really aren't, aren't directly related to me, and yet this is a big family wedding. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really interesting. I mean, so now he's marrying Dorothy, and Dorothy's granddaughter is married to Bob, and how does that mean I am related to Bob? I don't know. It's so hard. I can't figure it out. I don't know how to tell. So, so well, Bob is your... I don't know. He's just Bob. I don't know how he's related to me, but, you know, we're connected. You know, I mean, this is what, the way it works now. Uh, I mean, and, and that's the way life is. It's messy and it's complicated. And sometimes you can have all this stuff in your head and have it all figured out. But in the middle of it, when you're dealing with people and the reality of people, it gets very complex. And Paul says, OK, so, you know, if it just overwhelms you, just say, OK, well, if Paul was here, what would Paul do? And you're probably good. You're probably good. And God will be with you. Now, now, what he does say in that is, you know, do it, right? If you'll do like I've done, right? He adds do to show that these things are not only good to think about, but to bring into action. And, and that made me think about Jesus with the disciples uh, at the Last Supper. He washes their feet. And then he says, you know, I've given you an example. If I, your master and teacher, uh, should wash your feet, you should do for this for each other. And then he says, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Because the reality of, of being a follower of Christ is that it's never just about what you think. It's about who you are and how you live and what you do. And the blessing doesn't fall just from getting it all figured out in your head right. The blessing falls from actually living your life in accord with that and living it out. But if you do that, if you, if you live it out, God of peace will be with you. And remember, peace is very much a part of who God is. Our God is truly the God of peace. We are constantly called to peace by God who himself is peace. His calling is not timidity or weakness or in some show of strength. God is at peace with himself to such a degree that he even allows sins to be committed against him. When he could certainly, by the terror of his manifested power and ineffable greatness, force even the unwilling into subjection. But peace of this kind is that of the world, not that of God 
whose very nature is peace. I mean, the, the, the peace of God is not coercive or tyrannical or forced. The peace of God is convincing and winsome and loving. And this is who God is, and, and this is the peace that God imparts to us. So Paul writes this letter, these final kind of words of encouragement to the church of Philippi. It'll be the last communication he has with them before he is executed. And just encourages them, focus yourself on God, you know, in the midst of the world you live in. And I just kind of want to ask you, you know, where your focus is. You're going to leave here in a while, you're going to go out in the world and your phones are going to begin to beep if they're not doing it already. Or you're going to turn on the TV or turn the radio on your car and, and you're going to hear all this stuff coming at you from everywhere. You're going to be bombarded with all the news of the brokenness of the world. And all of it's going to call for your attention. And will you allow the brokenness of the world to define who you are? Or will you allow the peace of God to define who you are? Let's pray. Mighty Father, we confess to you that we find ourselves oftentimes overwhelmed. All the, all the inputs that are speaking into our lives through all the various forms of media that are bringing us all the news of, of everything in the world that is broken and wrong. And all of them calling for our attention. And, and sometimes it, it, it seems that our minds are just totally torn apart in different directions. We ask that you, you help us. You help us in the middle of this. To bring our minds and our hearts and our, our very selves back to you. To focus ourselves on you. On, on, on the goodness of your presence in the world and on what you have provided for us and of your presence with us and of your peace which defines who you are and indwells in us. And so we ask that you call us back to you so that instead of our lives being defined by the brokenness that is around us, our lives might be defined by you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.